Hey everyone, uh, before we get going today, I've got a quick announcement to make, and that's to promote the Endurance Athlete Summit that uh, some of the Toronto triathlon coaches are putting together. Uh, I'm not involved in the uh, in the organization of the summit itself, but I am going to be one of the speakers um, th- during the event, and uh, it's an online summit. Of course, everyone around the world is welcome to attend uh, February 5th through 7th of 2021 uh endurancethletesummit.com is the website and the link to it will be in our show notes and i'll be talking about aerodynamics of course <laughs> it's either aerodynamics or heat transfer um but uh i think aerodynamics is going to be a more uh, a more interesting conversation so i'll be i'll be doing a about an hour presentation um on that so i hope you guys will want to check that out you um, know that's not a great lead into our current topic saying aerodynamics is more interesting than heat transfer <laughs> well so, <laughs> uh, fair enough yes back still on that one <laughs> yeah backpedal on that one hi everyone i'm andrew and i'm michael and this is the endurance innovation podcast Today, Andrew and I are going to be chatting about uh, my first impressions with the uh, the core temperature sensor. Now, if you'll remember, we had uh, Chris from from Core on a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now, uh, talking about the sensor and uh, the the ways that they validated it and what uh, what it it can do. And uh, just as a quick reminder, this is a an on skin a little um, uh, thermoelectric generator sensor that measures um, skin temperature, but more importantly, core body temperature. And so I've uh, I've received one um, last weekend and uh, have been playing around with it ever since. And I'm really really excited to. Uh, to talk to you all about it. And I've been incredibly jealous of you having it. So I think I might go <laughs> order one for myself soon too. <laughs> yeah. So, so listeners, full disclosure, this was a, a sensor that was uh, sent to us um, by core um, uh, as a demo unit. So, uh, you know, we just in the kind of in the interest of transparency, we, we always want to disclose that, uh, you know, whenever we're, 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 lent or or given a trial unit um, by a company that we are covering just so that you understand that that's where we're coming from. But having said that, as Andrew mentioned, he's going to go out and, and buy one and pay full retail for it. And, um, and my thoughts are, uh, you know, legitimately my thoughts on this and not in no way influenced by the fact that I only had to pay duties and taxes for this particular unit. So you've been playing around with it then. I'm like, I'm flying kind of blind in here. Um, I have no idea what your experience has been so far. So I'm (laughs) super curious, as I'm sure our listeners are, to hear exactly what you've been seeing. Right. Um, So it's actually a pretty interesting device. Um, It's fairly straightforward to set up. It has uh, a couple of modes. You can either run it connected to your smartphone uh, in 24-hour mode, in which case it's monitoring you all the time. Um, or you can pair it to a sport watch like uh, a Garmin, or I think it w- works with Wahoo as well. Um, I'm using a Garmin, of course. Um, sport watch, or of course, a, a bike computer, any any kind of uh, modern uh, Garmin device. And with Garmin specifically, it works through their Connect IQ platform. So it um, it presents core temperature as a, as a data field uh, that you can see live, and then of course it writes 
the uh, the temperature data onto the fit file so that you can review it later. Now, it's still, you know, it's still early goings in this technology, so it doesn't uh, have all the integrations that you're going to want eventually. Um, so it's not it's not integrated into training peaks just yet. Uh, so currently I've been looking at my data through Garmin connect because of the, uh, yeah, because like I said, it does work through CIQ and it's written into the fit file. So in terms of logistics, you clip it onto your heart rate monitor or to a sports bra kind of on the, on the side of your chest is the ideal location. Although core says that a couple of other locations work. I haven't tried those yet. And uh, then you, you, off you go. Oh, wait, not quite. Um, they do recommend that you, uh, you clip it on maybe 10 or 10 or 15 minutes before you start training because there's a little bit of a lag in the signal pickup. And I found the one time I didn't do that, I had to restart my, uh, my Garmin file, um, my Garmin workout. So it's, uh, it's, it's a good idea um, because of, I actually don't really understand why. Um, there's a little bit of a lag in that data. And so um, just good practice to, to put it on your skin a little bit before you want to start the recording of the, of the session. Anyway, so, uh, so far all I've been really doing is uh, uh, going for fairly casual Zwift rides, a, a little bit of high-intensity interval training, but nothing super, super intense. Um, I'm also doing a time trial race tomorrow, well, tomorrow based on the, the time of this recording. Um, and, uh, I haven't really wanted to stress test myself or, or stress heat stress myself in any way. Uh, so I've been running these, uh, running the fan, like I usually have been, I haven't really tried to overheat intentionally. Um, and so what I found is, uh, during the hardest workout, uh, my temperature went up to about 38.17 degrees um, which is a little bit surprising because I still felt good. I, I, I felt quite comfortable. Um, and I was only at that temperature for maybe 20 minutes towards the end of the ride. Um, I was certainly sweating. The fan was cooling me off. It felt quite pleasant. Um, and, uh, that made me think about the times that I've had fevers when I've been sick. And, uh, when the thermometer is showing 38 plus, I feel kind of crummy, you know, and I feel really hot and uncomfortable. Um, actually you feel cold when you have a fever usually, but anyway, I could definitely feel the, uh, the temperature. Um, but in this case it didn't feel so bad. So that was, that was an interesting observation. And that led me to thinking, um, about one of the uses that I want to, um, experiment with uh, one of the use cases I want to experiment with for the core is figuring out at what point do I start to feel really yucky um, on the bike. And yucky is a scientific term, by the way. Um, and uh, set that kind of set point so that I can I can use it in both training and in racing. And actually, Core has a, a test that they've just released, uh, kind of a ramp test um, to establish that in a more uh, rigorous way. But uh, I'm curious at what my subjective, uh, you know, uh, my subjective feelings about my core temperature will be as I train more with this device and as I actually push it. And in fact, this, uh, this time trial um, on Thursday morning, I'm definitely going to wear the device and I'm going to see, see how high I can get, but I'll also be blasting my fan because it's all about performance and not about testing at that point. So there's a couple interesting things that, that you mentioned here. So one being a fever where you had a core temperature of around the same level, uh, but with the fever, I would I would guess that your whole body is much closer to that temperature where you're not, you know, you don't have a fan on you. You're not, well, maybe you're sweating a little bit, but not as much as you would be during exercise. So even though your core temperature might be at a peak there, um, I would 
suggest that the average temperature of your body is lower when you're exercising, or at least when you have the same core temperature, because you've got a gradient towards the outside. Hmm. Um, so that might be why it feels more comfortable, but this is purely a guess. Like I don't understand the biology nearly enough to make an educated guess at it, but, um, but that's just my thoughts. If I were to you know treat you as a lump you know that what? heat transfer was coming out of. <laughs> Yeah, treat me as a lump. Um, but I, you, I think you bring up an excellent point. I was just having a conversation with an athlete that I coach about something similar to this, and it's, um, it is about perception. Because having, um, even if my core temperature is fairly high and I'm sweating, so there's obviously like a layer of, of you know, water on my skin, and there's a fan that's blowing, you know, cold air. I'm in my basement. It's probably you know, 17 degrees or 18 degrees down here. Um, that's blowing cold air over me. Um, there is, you know, the skin temperature sensors are telling me that I'm cold, right? Because they are, the the evaporative heat transfer is going full bore. It's dry and cool in here. It's like the perfect kind of conditions for for forced air evaporative heat transfer. So my skin is like, yeah, this is nice. <laughs> um, so I, when you're, and when you have a fever, you actually don't sweat, right? Because your your body is trying to conserve that that temperature, right? That's the that's the thermo, thermal regulation thing that's happening there. And then everything feels hot. I think you make a good point that there is definitely a difference between between the the perception of this core temperature when you're sweating and and being cooled versus uh, versus an actual you know illness induced fever. One other interesting point that I've actually played around with in the past is because um, this is the kind of stuff I do at home in my free time. But I took a thermal <laughs> camera and I set it up behind uh, while I was running on a treadmill and I had a fan on me. And the time lapse that came out of it, I'll see if I can dig it up. I, I don't know if I still yeah. have it, but the, the time lapse that came out of it actually showed that my skin temperature was at a peak at the start of the exercise. And as I started sweating, it cooled down significantly. You, you can hmm. actually see spots where either there was a lot of evaporative heat transfer or areas that I wasn't sweating very much because there was a significant difference between the hottest and coldest parts of my body. Now, mind you, it was only one angle it was looking at. I think it was set up behind me and it was a time lapse. So it was, you know, every three seconds or every five seconds it was taking an yeah. image. But um, yeah, I'll see if I can dig that up. I hadn't thought of that for probably a year until <laughs> until this discussion right now. Yeah, but I mean, that goes to show you that, you know, this is why this is why evaporative heat transfer is so effective, right? You set mm -hmm. up a, a mm -hmm. very large... Uh, temperature gradient between skin and uh, core temperature. Um, but if it's not paired to um, a support device, you can also access it through your phone. And in that case, you can see both um, both core temperature and skin temperature. Uh, skin temperature is not reported through Connect IQ uh, Core. You can tell me why that is. Maybe it's because it takes up an extra channel and you didn't want to do that. But uh, it'd be interesting to see the delta between the two um, as you exercise. I'm, I'm willing to bet that, you know, what Andrew and I have just been discussing now, that it's, uh, it's going to be quite, you know, it's going to grow, uh, especially if you have some cooling set up. And the core temperature underneath the sensor too, <clears throat> like if you were to place an insulation layer right over a small localized area, that would increase that local temperature. So whatever's underneath will be closer to your core temperature, whereas something that's mm. out in the open will have more access to cooling and will be quite a bit cooler. So I think the skin temperature, it could be a little bit of a red herring. But there's, um, if they can accurately predict what your average skin temperature would be, then that could be useful as well. Because uh, 
yeah, temperature gradients typically drive heat transfer um, as well as evaporation. So those are both important metrics um, for how quickly you can remove heat from your body. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting thought. So anyway, as I'm as I'm riding on on Zwift, and I usually ride by myself, I'm always thinking about like, hmm, what else can I, you know, if the workout's not super hard. And lately, because I'm racing tomorrow, I'm not. I haven't been working very hard this week, so I've been thinking like, huh, what are the what are the applications of this device? And there's so many. So calibrating how I feel, how you know, uh, my core temperature relates to my perceived exertion is a very interesting, um, is a very interesting exercise for me. I mean, it's a, it's an N equals one exercise. It basically only applies to me. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, where our perception of heat is, as we just talked about varies, so, varies based on so many other factors. Um, but that's, that's an interesting one. I definitely want to do, the, the ramp test that core prescribes um, in order to get a kind of a um, what they what that ramp test does is it is it picks out uh, a core body temperature at which they recommend that you should be training if you're doing a block of heat training which I have absolutely no reason to do right now other than scientific curiosity so I think once uh, once that's this a perfect done, reason <laughs> I think that's a good reason too yeah um, I think I'm gonna go through a block of it and see you know, how miserable and sweaty I can get for a week. And, uh, I don't know if it's going to make any, any measurable performance difference, but, uh, because I'm obviously not going to go out and, you know, ride, uh, Ironman Cairns or something like that. Um, then, uh, it would be, it'd be interesting to see if there was any kind of like power difference. Um, maybe I'll do a ramp test before and after. Um, but it'll be, you know, it'll at least be an interesting experiment. Yeah. And another test that I'm actually interested in replicating is the heat chamber test I'd done previously and that I endlessly complain about. So I thought <laughs> this was so much fun. I can do it at home now. Um, but, uh, no, the joking aside, the, the test itself, um, what I would like to look at is the effect of cooling different parts of, of my body. Um, so we found this neat device that is actually used for surgery recovery. Um, and it's typically targeted at an older audience. Um, so it wasn't obvious to me, or I wasn't aware of this before, but I purchased one of these units in a little hip pad that you're supposed to use for recovering from hip surgery to, to chill the area. Um, but I wrapped it around my abdomen and, uh, did a workout with it without a fan on. And just as a, you know, very, very preliminary non-scientific study, um, it was actually a pretty big improvement to my, uh, perceived exertion, rate of perceived exertion. So, um, and this was using basically ice chilled water pumping through this pad that was probably about 50 centimeters by, 20, 25 centimeters. Cool. So it was a fairly large area it was covering. But uh, I would actually, once I get this core sensor, I'd like to replicate that on my own um, just because I'm interested in in seeing what actually happens to my core temperature with that excessive amount of cooling. Mm -hmm. um, just because it's, it's a very interesting study to do. Um, I'm not about to crank my house temperature up to 30 degrees and 70% <laughs> and humidity because I think that would be probably not good for the house or my pocketbook. But uh, yeah, it's, um, it's something I'm very curious at, at trying, just seeing like what kind of impact does this have? And maybe do the same, for example, the same trainer road ride um, with three different conditions. So I could do a baseline with uh, a fan on, I could do a baseline with nothing and then have the fan plus the cooling, or I guess four conditions and have just cooling. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different things I could study there to help 
provide some kind of control for it. But I think with the addition of the sensor, it actually does open up a lot of understanding about how your own body reacts, but also how you can mitigate some of that heat increase. Uh, and we could even play around with um, something like eating a slushy beforehand, because that's... Uh, I was going to say, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> my favorite topic. <laughs> that's going to be my next experiment, is like is, is seeing how much I can get the, the core body, the core temperature to drop having ingested some like ice product um, because it's, it's interesting to see so far my, my, like I said, my workouts haven't been very long and they haven't been very hard. Um, and I'll maybe add a little bit of an addendum once I do my time trial tomorrow, which should be about an hour um, at, you know, close to threshold and uh, see what, you know, see, see what it does there. But it, it's, uh, it tends to plateau after about what I've, what I've noticed doing workouts that are averaging kind of in the, you know, 70 to 75% of FTP. Some of them have been hit sessions, but with recovery intervals, the temperature seems to plateau after around 45 minutes and that's low 38s for me. Um, so I'm curious to see what like longer workouts and, and more intense workouts do. But it's, uh, you know, it looks like I'm a pretty big bucket. So this supports, you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about um, with, uh, with shorter races where you can just accumulate a lot of heat. You know, you can you can accumulate it and you don't have to worry too much about shedding it as much. But it's in these long, long races like the, you know, like the marathons and longer or the half Ironman and longer events where it really becomes an issue because, you know, you've kind of once that bucket's filled, it's not you're not you know, you don't have a very good way. Well, I mean, sweating is, is effective, but you've been doing it all along. There's you, you start to run out of options once you start once you start getting to that critical temperature, which, again, I'm curious to find out what mine is. So your your terminology of calling yourself a bucket is slightly more flattering than me calling you a lump. Um, yeah. So I'll try to call you a bucket from now on, just a big bucket. I'm good with either. No. Okay. Um, but the other thing that I'd be really curious to see as well is if you're doing a long workout, um, if you do take, for example, you take five minutes off to try and recover from the heat stress, or if you have a slushy during the middle of a workout and somehow manage not to throw up or give yourself brain freeze, <laughs> but uh, how those would actually impact the, the second half of the workout. Yeah. So say you're an hour into like an Ironman style training ride, uh, you know, around 70, 75% FTP, um, somewhere around there, and then have this intervention that you apply just to measure the second half of the, the race and see maybe if you leave yourself a slushy and somehow figure out how to prevent it from melting in your special needs bag. <laughs> but uh, it's something like that. It could be very interesting. And even um, and we've kind of joked about this before, but if, if race organizers were to provide something uh, very similar to a slushy for people at exceptionally hot races, so they'll provide ice water, but uh, the slushy might be something even more effective to help people and to improve safety. Yeah, I think I think you're you're onto something, and I think that's uh, um, a conversation that we may have with uh, a future guest who I don't want to announce just yet. We'll we'll definitely plug that <laughs> plug that idea to him because I think that's a uh, that's a brilliant idea on uh, on races that are known to be hot. I don't know about logistics of it, but also I bring this up again. I, if uh, if Canada Man next year is a go, and uh, given that it's a fully supported race, and that well, self supported, but you you get a car. Um, I'm wondering if on the bike, especially if it's a hot day, um, if if uh, having slushies as an option to cool me off. Um, if that's something that we, we can we can try playing around with. Well, if I'm your support crew, there's no guarantee that I'll be able to hold on to a slushy long enough without having it myself. So. <laughs> we just have to provide enough slushies for the yes. crew and the, and the athlete. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's still early days, folks. Um, as far as you know, testing. I haven't done anything very rigorous. It's just basically been data collection at this point and just trying to learn the nuances of the technology because they they are there. Like I said, the um the the biggest I think the biggest challenge in using it in any kind of uh, proactive sense. And it's not a challenge, just something that you have to be aware of is the lag time between, you know, intervention, as we've been saying, and, uh, and uh, effect. Um, because again, we are big, well, I'm a, I'm a very big bucket. Um, and, <laughs> or lump. Uh, it, even if I'm, or lump. Yeah. And if, even if I, even if I do something that's pretty dramatic, it takes, it, it will take a little bit of time before we see any, you know, I see any difference in, in core temperature, but, uh, yeah, it's. I'm. I'm very excited to keep uh, keep exploring the the possibilities of this device. So, um, yeah, and I'll I'll keep you folks up to date on on what I find. And kind of the other thing that I want to do is once I once as this technology um, as this technology becomes a little bit more mature, um, and as you know, techniques for both testing and training, uh, both you know, heat block training. Uh, advance, um, I want to start using it with the folks that I coach because there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of upside to using this for both getting ready for hot weather races, but also potentially for as a as an as a a novel intervention, a training intervention in um, in getting you know improving fitness without even necessarily having to go to a hot race. And personally, as someone who sucks in the heat, um, I'm very interested to see how I can improve my own performance and and whether or not I can detect when I'm about to have kind of an epic breakdown like I've had several times in the past. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. Like, you know, if you know that you're, you know, your tipping point above 38.7, let's say you, your performance really starts to decline, you can be proactive. And we, we, we talked a little bit to Chris uh, when he was on the show, uh, Chris from Core again, um, about being, about pacing yourself using this, using this technology. And I think it does take a little bit of getting used to, but it, it's entirely possible. And it's something that, you know, uh, in a pacing plan would be used as a cap um, in, uh, in hot weather. Uh, for sure. And I think that could that could really salvage a lot of races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very exciting technology. Yeah. Um, so listeners, we want to talk about one other thing. This is just something that I found and it's something that I've always wondered as a bike person. And I, this is the best answer to this question that I've seen in a while. This came from uh, an article in Velo News, uh, the exchange with uh, Leonard Zinn that some folks write to him offering advice or asking for advice. And this was on the um, the greasing of of bolts of fasteners when you're uh, adjusting or assembling your bike, and so I've heard in my you know years as a fitter and very amateur wrencher, I've heard all sorts of advice like you you always should grease bolts, you should never grease bolts, you should grease bolts that are in these materials and not in these materials, you should not grease bolts, but you should use um, thread locker like um like loctite instead and so i've heard all sorts of advice and uh there's an individual who is who comes from a mechanical engineering background but specifically works works in fasteners who wrote in um and i'll link i'll link this article because i think it's it's worth reading but uh he provides an excellent uh kind of two case point for why you should always grease um apply grease to uh, cycling fasteners um and it's a very uh it's a very compelling um compelling reason. But before I get into that, Andrew, what were your, uh, what was your experience or received knowledge about whether or not you should be greasing fasteners on bikes? 
Well, uh, as far as Loctite goes, that one um, I've never heard before because uh, I find sweat is a very effective Loctite. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you know what's worse than sweat is sport drink. Uh, yes, yeah. The combination of sweat and sport drink basically means yeah. the passenger will never come off again. <laughs> uh, and when it does, it's a disgusting mess. The the things that I've noticed on like in my own history, uh, and this mostly comes back to working with cars, is that uh, and it, it very well aligns with the recommendations of this engineer who wrote in. But uh, the the two main factors are preload and corrosion that you're looking at. Yeah. So there's there's something called the galvanic series, which basically means dissimilar metals have some potential between them, so they move electrons around, which causes corrosion. And uh, this is why you may have heard the term of sacrificial anodes on ships where they put something like the anode side will typically, that's the one that corrodes. Um, So on a ship, they'll put the sacrificial anode that kind of lowers the potential of this one area so that that is the part that corrodes instead of the rest of the the hull of a ship. Um, So that's that's very common in uh, marine usage. Mm -hmm. But um, the same kind of thing happens when you're dealing with um, fasteners. So if you've got, for example, uh, on a car, this is a very, very common example. But if you've got a steel bolt going into an aluminum engine block, um, that naturally forms corrosion. So it will, over time, basically weld itself into place. Um, So it can lead to a lot of broken bolts, a lot of swearing, (laughs) um, and sometimes extra expense. And and quite often when you put in a grease, uh, especially if it's a dielectric grease, um, it will prevent this galvanic action from happening as quickly. Um, So it it limits the corrosion that will happen. Um, So it can be very useful to keep fasteners in good condition that way. For sure. And, uh, and you know, you used, a, I think, you used the right combination of metals, uh, steel bolt into an aluminum, you know, aluminum hole. This happens all the time in bike frames, right? Because even even in uh, carbon frames, a lot of the times the, the inserts, the female inserts are aluminum uh, that go in. And the most common material used for screws is stainless steel. And even though stainless steel is meant to be corrosion resistant it's not entirely corrosion proof mm-hmm. and there's quite a bit of uh you know galvanic interaction as, as andrew mentioned between steel even stainless steel and aluminum so greasing those threads is important to to not um to not have them weld in place but what about clamping force clamping force and preload are basically the same thing it's just how much tension you have in the fastener so how much the head is pulling down on whatever you're tightening so fundamentally you're not really interested in what torque something's going to. You're trying to provide a preload for it mm-hmm. uh, in most cases anyway. So you're, you're trying to provide this clamping force that holds something together. And if you have a really loose bolt, that's where the clamping force isn't enough to keep it from moving around. And uh, conversely, if you over-tighten something, you can actually exceed the yield strength um, or the ultimate tensile strength of the fastener where it actually breaks. Yep. So... Both the too loose and too tight are very problematic uh, and should be avoided. So you need kind of the, the Goldilocks torque. Um, but the the big challenge you run into is when you're dealing with dissimilar materials, um, it's not always obvious, especially if something has been used a number of times, if there's a little bit of corrosion already on one side of the threads or the other. Um, so the torque spec they give is not really, it's not as accurate as it, as it could be. Um, so in the automotive world, what's typically done is you'll use some kind of lubrication to provide a more known surface. Mm-hmm. Um, so often you see engine oils or something like that uh, used just to coat the threads a little bit. 
Um, so, and that serves two purposes. It helps with corrosion a little bit, but it also uh, provides a more, more understood uh, coefficient of friction between the metals. So um, great example and something that's very common for anyone who's done engine work before is there's a company, ARP, that makes these uh, very high-performance head studs. So when you hold the cylinder head down in a car, you want to have a high amount of preload. Uh, and the, the high preload basically keeps the cylinder head from lifting up under the combustion force. Mm -hmm. And if the cylinder head lifts up or starts to deflect too much, it reduces the, the gasket force, which means the combustion can actually seep into the coolant channels around. And this is a leaky head gasket. This is something that most people have heard about. But having more preload is ideal. But most fasteners on a cylinder head are designed so that they're basically at their maximum tensile strength. Um, so ARP, this company, they, they provide these head studs that are higher strength so you can get more clamping load, but they also provide a thread lube. Um, and the first time I used this, I was looking at it, and I think the factory torque for the car I was working on was, was around 95 foot-pounds. And with ARP, um, even though they're higher clamp load, they were saying, oh, only use, I think it was like 55 or 65 as the, the peak torque. So in my head, I'm thinking like how this is when I was 16, but like, how can, how can you get the same amount of clamping force without having as much torque? And the answer is like they, the special lube that they give is so good at uh, keeping the thread sliding. Uh, and also more importantly, keeping them sliding consistently that you can get a much higher preload for a lower torque. Hmm. So if you're dealing with a situation where um, where your thread total strength or your fastener total strength isn't the limiting factor, then having a higher preload is usually a good thing. Um, it'll keep your seat post from slipping. It'll keep a whole bunch of other things from moving. Um, but you also want to make sure that when you are greasing that you don't over torque something um, because it feels like it's going in easier. You think, oh, I can just turn it a little bit further. But you do run the risk of uh, breaking a fastener that way too. And more than that, if you're working on carbon and you're, especially if you're clamping a carbon, you know, a, some kind of carbon member, like a seat post or, or handlebars, for example, um, the carbon is very susceptible to crush damage. So over torquing, even if you don't, even if you don't cause failure in the, in the fastener itself, you can crush your, uh, your carbon component, which is probably more likely with a grease bolt. Um, the, uh, you know, linking back to that article again, the uh, the gentleman was stating that uh, a greased bolt has a for the same torque is going to have a preload or a clamping force that's fifty percent higher. So that's that's tremendous. So that's like you know a common you know a common uh, torque on a, a bicycle component might be five newton meters, um, and uh, if you are you know, if that bolt is greased and you 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 torque it to the same five newton meters, then the clamping force is going to be you know the equivalent of having torqued it to seven and a half newton meters, right? So that's uh, that's a that's a huge difference. And that one of the one of the points that that he makes is that he believes, and I I, I bet he's right. The uh, the torque that manufacturers um, write down on the components uh, is for dry bolts. Mm -hmm. So if you are if you're torquing a greased fastener, you kind of want to take that, you know, that well, fifty percent, thirty three percent off the top at least, um, in, in as as a max torque. So in our example of, you know, five newton meters, if you were to grease that bolt, you would want to take, you know 
I would say, well, rounded up two Newton meters, right? We're getting into precision questions or accuracy questions of our, of our torque wrenches, but you, you probably don't want to go much past um, three Newton meters to torque that, uh, that component if that bolt is greased. Yeah, it, it's just something to be careful of and to use your best judgment, um, but it will result in improved performance for sure. Um, you just don't want to improve it too much accidentally because that could cause <laughs> yeah. other problems. Um, yeah, you don't want to crush seat posts. But I think it is a really good practice because when it comes to taking things apart, uh, you're going to be thankful of it. Um, so many times I've seen, for example, like the extensions I had on my uh, on my Ventum. Um, the first time I put them together, I didn't use any grease in there and I broke three out of the four bolt heads. Uh, and it was actually, so it wasn't the threads that had, um, that had seized, but it was actually in the spacers. <laughs> so enough sweat got in there that it formed a solid, basically weld inside the spacer and it broke the, uh, the bolt head off. Nice. Um, and it was like, once I removed the spacer, it was just sticking out. Um, which made it really easy to get out, fortunately. Otherwise, I would have been in a bit of trouble. But you would have been uh, drilling that thing out. Yep. Yeah, which is a technique you can do, um, where basically you try to drill down the center of a bolt so that not much of it's left. Yeah. And then you can, uh, you can either drill it so that you can squeeze and remove the threads. Like if you deform them, it's usually enough to disengage, um, and then you can rotate them out. Or um, there's there's a couple techniques, and there'd be lots of online tutorials how to do it. I'm sure there's hundreds of YouTube videos on how to do it. Um, but it's not the end of the world if you do break a fastener, but it's certainly a pain. Totally. And I would say it's even more of a pain if you, as I said, if you crush that $500 um, arrow bar or you know mm. base bar or, or seat post. Yeah, that's always a little bit of a trick. Um, cool. What do you think, Andrew? A good place to stop? I think it is for now. It's uh, It's been a very interesting discussion, and I don't want to overwhelm people with uh, <laughs> with any more. And honestly, if you do surprise me with another topic, then I don't know how I'll react to that. <laughs> um, I think, uh, yeah, so let's leave it here. Um, and I will, as I, as I promised, I'll continue to update folks with my experience with the core sensor because it is kind of like I am a little bit of a kid in a candy shop the scenario right now because uh it's it's you know i've used power meters and heart rate monitors and other stuff for so many years that this is the first time that something truly novel is uh is in my hands and so i'm uh, i'm pretty excited on uh, on all the possibilities excellent looking forward to more stories so listeners thank you as uh, as always for tuning in uh do rate and review us on itunes spotify or wherever it is you get your podcasts uh, thank you for those of you who have written reviews. They are very much appreciated. Alan Hobda wrote us a really nice review on uh, on iTunes. Shout out to you, Alan. Thank you very much. Um, they do help the podcast get found. So continue to pen those. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.